The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. about Jesus as the anchor of your soul. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. Let me give you a little summary so we can all get together here. Maybe you had a really bad last week and you don't even remember what I said last week. Maybe you weren't here last week or last couple of weeks. Uh, If you weren't, hey, go to the website and go online and watch and or listen to the sermons. It'll really help you, especially concerning last week. But I'm, I'm going to do a little review this morning. Now, the writer of Hebrews, uh, we don't know who the writer is. He doesn't identify himself. But he's writing to Jews. And he's writing to Jews who are uh, in one of three groups. They either, they either are contemplating giving their lives to Christ. They haven't yet come to faith. Or they've given their lives to Christ and they're still very immature or they've given their lives to Christ, and now they're thinking, I, I think I might go back to Judaism. I need some of Judaism to come into Christianity with me. And he's trying to get them to just focus on Jesus. So the way he does that is he begins the book in chapter 1 by saying, In the past, God spoke to our uh, forefathers by prophets and in various ways. But now he has spoken by his Son, through his Son, Jesus, who is completely God. That's chapter 1 who's greater than angels. That's the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Who's completely man. That's chapter 2, part of chapter 3. Who's greater than Moses, chapter 3. Who's greater than Aaron, part of chapter 4. And then he's going through all of this, and then he gets to the part where he wants to go deeper, and he wants to talk about things for mature Christians to grow up, and then he stops. And he says, I'd like to do this with you, but you're still on the milk of the word. You're still struggling with your immaturity. And he kind of defines it for us here. If you'll turn with me to the last verse of uh, chapter 5. If you've got chapter 6 open, you're right there. Last verse of chapter 5. He's talking about immaturity in the end of chapter 5. And he says, but solid food is for the mature. Uh, he, he, he said to them before, you're on the milk of the word. This is, you need to eat steak. It's spiritual steak Solid food is for the mature. How, does you, how do we define spiritual maturity? It's those who have the powers of their discernment trained. Now, there are some of us who kind of have a natural gift of discernment. There's some of us who kind of look at people and situations and we go, ah, something's wonky with that. You have a natural gift of discernment. Uh, there are others of us who have our powers of discernment train because we have the Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit of God working through us to train us. And the Scripture says it's trained by, still in the last verse of chapter 5, constant practice. You see, the Christian life isn't, I'm a Christian on Sunday morning when I'm in church at Emmanuel, and then the rest of the week I'm on my own. And then I'm a Christian when I'm in life group on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday night. And then I'm on, no, it's by constant practice. And what are you practicing? It's you are, you are increasing your powers of discernment. They are trained by the constant practice of distinguishing good from evil, good from bad, what's right and what's wrong. So we have a definition for spiritual maturity here. Spiritual maturity isn't based on how much of your Bible do you know. 
Spiritual maturity is based on how much of your Bible do you live. There are a lot of people who know their Bible, but they don't live it. And we live in a day and age, a culture, both a political and a pop culture in the United States, where there are literally people who stand up and say, what's good is bad and what's bad is good. They, they it perverted oh, the things that are good in this life, turned it around, stood it on its head and said, now that what's bad is really good. And if you claim that what's bad is bad, oh, what are you, some narrow-minded fanatic? Oh, you're one of those religious people? And so... Christian maturity comes with a process of learning right and wrong and living that. Now, a lot of people don't learn that. They stay in kind of a perpetual immaturity. Come to church every week, go to life group, but they never really grow up. And the writer kind of moves us into chapter 6 by helping us to understand that perpetual immaturity often leads to the false belief that we can lose our salvation. Maybe that's you. You you say, I you know what? I when I pray, I, I don't really get an answer to prayer like other people. I I don't really see any miracles in my life. I, I don't really see the power of God in my life. I the word of God just doesn't jump off the pages at me because you're you're stuck in immaturity. You don't see the work of God, and so you instead of uh, assuming, instead of correctly distinguishing that your problem is your immaturity, you think. I've lost my salvation. You come to the wrong conclusion. And so many people go, well, I, I blew it really bad last week, Pastor. I, I blew it so bad I lost my job. I blew it so bad I, man, I, I, I put my family in financial peril. I, I blew it so bad I think I'm going to lose my marriage. I, I blew it so bad I, I think this relationship's blown forever. I think I lost my salvation. And so the writer of Hebrews is stopping here in the middle of the book, chapter 6. And speaking to those of us who are so spiritually immature that we think we can lose our salvation, or that you think somebody else can lose their salvation. I mean, everybody's got a person in their life. Uh, let's just call him Uncle Ernie. If you have an Uncle Ernie, I'm not picking on him. I'm just going to make this up, okay? And you, what you think is, you know, Uncle Ernie used to go to church. Uh, he was a Sunday school teacher. He, he was a deacon. He knew his Bible really well. And then he walked away from all of it. And he hadn't been in church or served the Lord in 20 years. I think he lost his salvation. In fact, after I preached last week's sermon, I preached it three times, I think after each service, somebody came up to me and said, well, I know I can't lose my salvation, but can I just renounce it and walk away from it? And uh, the answer to that, by the way, is in 1 John chapter 2. If you want to see it, uh, hold your spot there in, uh, in Hebrews 6. Let me show it to you because I want you to have this nailed down. 1 John chapter 2, John's the last living apostle. He's writing about this problem, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not all of us. What is he saying? He's not saying that they can lose. We, our conclusion is they lost their salvation. John says, no, no, wrong conclusion. They never had it. They were just playing church. They were here. They were in the room with us. But the reason they could leave us and never look back is they never had what we had. And he talks about what we had in the very next verse, verse 20. I'm still in 1 John chapter 2. But you, see the, see the contrast? You've been anointed by the Holy One. They, they weren't anointed by the Holy One. They were just in church. You've been anointed by the Holy One. You have 
the knowledge of God. Verse 21, I write to you not because you don't know, but I write to you because you do know. You know that you have Spirit of Christ. In fact, just flip over, look at chapter 5, verse 13, still in 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may hope that you have eternal life. Is that what your Bible says? That you may wonder if you have eternal life. It doesn't say that. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So back in Hebrews chapter 6, we're looking at the assurance of our salvation. And this was last week's sermon. Now, I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but for those who weren't here and for those who've had a long week, let me summarize it very quickly. The first half of Hebrews gave us three reasons to hold to the assurance of our salvation. Reason number one, losing our salvation, this is how the writer writes in Hebrews chapter 6, is a spiritual impossibility. We're going to come back and hit that nail again this morning, but God can't lie. He can't trick you. He can't fool you. It's not bait and switch. Hey, here's eternal salvation. Oh, no, it's just temporary salvation. It's called everlasting life. It's not called if you make it there, then you get everlasting life. He says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. The promises of God are so many when it comes to salvation, and so it's impossible for him to lose you. By the way, here's another way to think of it. We always say this phrase, I'm afraid I might lose my salvation. It's not your salvation. It's God's. God holds you. I've got grandchildren. When, they're, when I've got the little ones and we're going to cross the street, I might say, hold Papa's hand. But when they reach out for me, I don't just let them hold my hand so they can let go of my hand. I hold them because we're going to cross the street. And they might let go of me, but it ain't going to matter because I'm bigger and stronger and I've got them. I want to say this to you this morning. God's got you. It's, in, it's a spiritual impossibility for him to let you go. Secondly, what we talked about last week, to think you can lose your salvation makes a mockery of the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paid for all of your sins. And then when you say, oh, well, uh, it only paid for 99.9%, I've got to do the rest, then his, his sacrifice isn't all sufficient. It's no longer a perfect sacrifice. It's an insufficient sacrifice. God didn't do what he said he would do. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, actually, if you, if, if you believe you can lose your salvation, then for you to get saved, Christ would have to die again. And for many of us, the process would be, I would lose it, and then he would come to earth again, live a perfect life again, die again, and then I would receive him again, and then I would lose my salvation, and then he would have to do it again, and again, and again, and again. And that makes a mockery of the whole thing. We're going to read this later this morning, but he died once for all. Third conclusion from last week's sermon, and that is, if you read Hebrews chapter 6 and you thought that losing your salvation is what it was teaching, you would come to the exact opposite conclusion that the author makes. After he gives us all of this, he, he ends it by saying in verse 11, I'm back in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 11, And we desire for each one of you. It's the Holy Spirit who's really the writer of this. It's God's desire for each one of you to show the same earnestness earnestness, and to have the full assurance of hope till the end. The single greatest doctrine in all of the Bible is, of course, the doctrine of salvation. Single greatest doctrine because that's how we're saved. That's how we're changed. It's how our sins are forgiven. It's how heaven becomes our home. It's how the Holy Spirit indwells us. Doctrine of salvation is the single greatest doctrine. The next greatest doctrine is the assurance of your salvation. 
That's why the writer takes the time to do this. Now, that catches you up to where we are today. I'm actually just starting today's sermon. Say amen. All right. Verse 13. I'm in Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise. Now, what's the passage about? The the passage is about the assurance of your salvation. The writer wants you to know that you know that you know that Christ Jesus has saved you and that you cannot lose it. It is God's promise to you. So now he's going to use an illustration about the promises of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to, to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And verse 15 says, And Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained that promise. Now, uh, everything we've read in Hebrews, whenever the writer wants to make his case, when he, when he brings in his evidence and his documentation, he always goes to the Old Testament because he's writing to Jews. And Jews understand the Old Testament. They've, they've learned the Old Testament. They've memorized the Old Testament. So here he wants to illustrate to you the God who has made a promise to you. What are the promises? Once again, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You're in my hand, Jesus says. I'm in the Father's hand. No one can pluck you from my hand. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are all the promises of your salvation. God's made this promise. But if you think you can lose your salvation then God can't keep the promise. So he wants, to, wants you to know you can bank on God's promise. So he chooses an illustration. He's writing to Jews. He chooses Abraham. Now, since very few of you in this room, maybe none of you are actual Jews, and it's a room full of Gentiles, I'm going to take you back to Genesis chapter 15, okay? Hold your place there in Hebrews 6. Go with me to Genesis 15. If you were all Jews, I could just allude to it. Since you are pagan Gentiles. We're going to read it. Okay, Genesis 15, one of the watermarked chapters of the Bible, not only referred to in Hebrews 6 by this writer as he makes the case for the assurance of our salvation, but referred to in Romans 4 by the Apostle Paul when he's explaining salvation. And he says, how did Abraham get saved? Abraham got saved the same way you get saved. He got saved by faith. That comes from Genesis 15. Here it is, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. His name isn't changed to Abraham yet. Came in a vision, and the Lord said, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, Lord, what will you give me? I I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Uh, uh, Abraham and the Lord have this ongoing conversation, and the Lord says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you... uh, a son. Uh, I'm going to give you grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I'm going to multiply your seed. And uh, Abraham says, well, it hasn't happened yet. And he goes on and he says in verse 3, Abraham says, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household. He's literally a slave in my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He takes him outside of the tent. He says, look toward heaven. Count the stars. See if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Look at verse 6. Underline it, mark it, put a star next to it. This is what you find in in Romans chapter 4. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. This is the moment when Abraham is saved. 
He got saved the same way that you do. He, he looked forward to the promise of the coming of the Messiah. We look backward at the promise of the coming of the Messiah. Both are saved by faith. Abraham wasn't saved by keeping the law. The law didn't exist yet. Moses wasn't even born yet, the lawgiver. Abraham was saved because he believed God. But the conversation continues, verse 7. Abraham, or the Lord said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm going to give you this land to possess. Abraham said, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So the Lord said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring a three-year-old heifer to me, a female goat that's three years old, a ram that's three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of them, and he cut them in half. And he laid each half over against the other. One's on one side, one's on the other. Uh, except the birds, he put one on one side, one on the other. And then the, then the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Verse 12 says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and a great darkness fell on him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain. Now, now stop just a second, because if you're, if you're lost in the story of Genesis 15, I want to remind you, we're not studying Genesis 15. We're studying Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6, the writer wants you to be certain of your salvation, right? So he's going to remind you that God who makes promises always keeps his promises. And so he reminds us that God made a promise to Abraham and he kept it. And so in the middle of the story, which we're reading because we're studying Hebrews 6 about the assurance of our salvation, God says, know for certain. Back to Genesis chapter 15, though. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. God is telling him that all of his, all of his offspring are going to be slaves in Egypt. He's prophesying that ahead of time. He says, I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. They literally plundered Egypt when they came out. He said, as for yourself, you'll go to your fathers in in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age, and they will come back here in this land that I'm giving you in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these animals that are cut in half and they're laid out and the summation is verse 18 on that day the lord made a covenant with abraham now let me tell you a little bit about this covenant this is a covenant that was used fairly regularly in the day in which abraham lived and it's called a blood covenant Now, this is not the kind of covenant you make with your neighbor when you want to decide uh, where you're going to put the property line and build the fence. That's an everyday handshake. This is a covenant that uh, is life or death kind of vows. Maybe a covenant where one person has this kingdom and one person has this kingdom, and the kings say, I won't attack you and you won't attack me. Okay, let's make this a covenant. And they would take animals and slay them. Now, for those of you who are hunters and you field dress your animals, this is like everyday stuff. For those of you who are squeamish, just hang with me for a little bit, okay? They take these animals and they field dress them. They cut them in half, this side and this side. Imagine like this middle aisle. One, half of the animal on this side, half on this side, half on this side. There's three animals laying there and then the two birds. 
and you walk through the blood because you've field dressed these animals and you've cut them up. And so, again, squeamish, hang with me. It's called a blood covenant. And you walk through the blood. And the concept is, I meet you here and we shake hands. It's a little bit like in the American context of the Native Americans. You maybe have seen in the movies where the uh, uh, Indian would cut his hand and then the, someone else cut their hand and they're blood brothers, right? The concept is, if we don't keep these vows, what happened to these animals happens to us. That's the concept. It's a serious, lifelong, this is my vow, I'll never go back on it, blood covenant. However, in the story, in Genesis 15, God didn't meet Abraham between the animals. Abraham was in a vision. He was in the darkness. He was seeing God do it all. God made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham didn't have any part of the covenant. God said, this is what I will do, and I will do it all. Nudge your heads. You got it? Fast forward. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's go back. Hebrews chapter 6. What's the context of Hebrews chapter 6? The context is the assurance of your salvation. The writer of Hebrews wants you to know and get this. He doesn't want you to spend your life thinking, I'm saved, I'm not saved. If I do this, I can lose my salvation. He wants you to grow up. He wants you to be mature in this. And so he says, verse 13, once again, when God made a promise to Abraham, he didn't have anyone greater to swear by, so he swore by himself, saying, I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having waited patiently, he obtained the promise. People who swear... They swear by something greater than themselves. In all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So even today, if you go to court, uh, you put your hand on the Bible, you raise your hand and say, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's, a, that's an oath. But God doesn't have, any, he doesn't have anybody bigger to swear by. So he just did the whole covenant himself for himself. Verse 17, now we come back to the New Testament. So when God desired to show more convincingly, more convincingly than animals cut in two, laying on each half, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, he's talking about the fact, number one, that he can't lie. Number two, his purpose doesn't change in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. Now he's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about going from the holies to the holy of holies. And then he names that hope when he says in verse 20, this is where Jesus, who has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's what the writer of Hebrews does. He gives us five more reasons that you can hold to the assurance of your faith, that you can't lose your salvation 
in the second half of chapter 6. He gave us three reasons in the first half of chapter 6. Then he gives us this, this illustration that God made this promise to Abraham, and he kept that promise. And, he, and you understand, he just gave us one illustration, but he could have said, and God made a promise to Isaac, and he kept that promise. And God made a promise to Jacob, and he kept that promise. And God made a promise to Joseph, and he kept that promise. And God made a promise to Moses, and he kept that promise. And God made a promise to David, and he kept that promise. You know I can keep going like this, right? So he's making that point. And so he's going to give us five reasons why we can know for certain that he will keep our salvation. Number one, you can trust the promise of God. What's his track record on this? It's 100%. He doesn't lie. He doesn't mislead us. He's not trying to trick us. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's not pie in the sky. It's, it, it's not something that you hope. So many people say, well, I hope when I die I go to heaven. That is not his intent that you would live your life just hoping. You can trust the promise of God just like Abraham. Number two, you can trust the pledge of God. Now, if your, if your track record for promises is 100%, you don't really have to make pledges. But God did it for Abraham anyway. He said, okay, we'll make a covenant. And they cut the animals, cut them in half. Two, one, two, three, two birds, all right there, cut all in half. But then God was the only one who made any promises. God is the only one who made a pledge. Abraham just received it. And so here we are in the New Testament. Now, God has, for us, done something more convincing than an Old Testament blood covenant. What has he done? He's done a New Testament blood covenant. Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the elements that were of the Passover, and he said, this wine, he takes the wine, he goes, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. You know, the, you know what God did for you? He made a blood covenant with you. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. He made a blood covenant with you. It wasn't a three-year-old cow and ram and goat. It was his only son. The pledge that he made to you, that you can know for certain, that your salvation is dear to his heart, and he will hold it and keep it for all eternity, is that he gave the life of his son to make that covenant with you. So number one, we trust God's promise. Number two, we trust his pledge. Number three, we can trust the person of God or the character of God. Now, no promise or pledge is any better than the person who makes it. Uh, any of you have a person in your life who always asks you to borrow money but never pays you back? If you're sitting next to them, don't look at them right now. Um, they come to you and they go, hey, I'm a little short. Can you spot me 50 bucks till payday? I'll pay you back. And you know they never pay you back. So it doesn't matter how many promises they make and how many pledges they make. It's not good because you know their character. The promise in a pledge is only as good as the person's character. So what do we know about the character of God? It's unchangeable. It never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God who saved Abraham by faith, and he saves us by faith in the New Testament. He's that God. He's the God who loves you so much, he sent his one and only son to die for you. We know the character of God. The character of God is love. God is love. He loves us with a steadfast love. He gives us grace and mercy, and his mercies are new and fresh every day. This is the 
character of God. So you can trust the promise of God and the pledge of God because you know what kind of person he is. You trust the person of God. Number four, you can trust the purpose of God. See, when God's character is unchangeable, then so is his purpose. Look at it again in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose. What's been the purpose of God? The scripture says Jesus is the Lamb of God slain since before the foundation of the world. When Jesus came to this earth and he walked here, he said in Luke 19 verse 10, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. The purpose of God has always been the redemption of humanity. That's always been the purpose of God. And he doesn't change that. He doesn't change that because Trump's president now, oh, I've got to change my plan. He doesn't change that because the world nation, uh, the United Nations votes on this or because the Congress votes on that. He doesn't change his plan because you messed up last week. His grace is bigger than that. His mercy is bigger than that. His character is bigger than that. His promise is bigger than that. His purpose is bigger than that. You can trust the unchangeable purpose of God. Number five, when he gets to the end, and then it's kind of like it's kind of like new information, but he goes, "We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul." It's not a it's not a rusty old about to fall apart anchor. It's not a barnacle covered anchor. It's not an anchor that some ship doesn't use anymore, and so it's sitting there as decoration in front of the harbor anchor. It's a rock. It's the fortress. It's the one you run to. It's the anchor of your soul. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus, Jesus is the hope. He's the anchor. He's gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He is the priest. You can trust the priest of God. Now, the priest of God, in this case, Jesus, he does more than a normal priest. A normal priest goes into the holy of holies on our behalf because we can't go in. Jesus is a different kind of priest. He goes into the Holy of Holies and then tears the curtain and invites us all in. He's the forerunner for us. And he says, come to the presence of God. That's his purpose. That's who he is. That's why he died on the cross. That's why the veil was torn in two. That's why the stone was rolled away so you could see the tomb was empty. That's why he sends his Holy Spirit to seal us until the day of adoption. That's why he gives us his word so we can study it right here and go, Wow, this is for me. And that's why the writer of Hebrews wants you to understand it's an impossibility if you're truly saved for you to lose that salvation. I want you to think about, just for a moment, how many times you've blown it. You can think if you want. You can just think the last week if it's too much to go past that. Or think about one relationship, how many times I've blown it just in one relationship. Now I want you to think about not how many times you've blown it, but how terrible some of those were. See, it's one thing to count the, the quantity of how many times you blow it. It's another thing to count the quality of how bad they are. And God knows all of those. And he, and he doesn't turn his face from you. He doesn't go, 
Okay, I died for all mankind. Well, except for you and you and you. You guys are really bad. He says to you, Come to me, and I will in no wise cast you out. He says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He says to me, he says to us, you're in my hand, I'm in the Father's hand. No one will pluck you from our hand. He says to to you, if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. And the writer of Hebrews says, this is his promise. This is why Jesus came. This is his pledge. This is actually God's purpose. You can trust in his character And Jesus has paved the way for us. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Christ, why not today? Why not today? Why not here and now where you decide once and for all, Lord, here's my life. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, and you know them all. You know how many there are, and you know how bad they are. And I'm asking you to forgive me. And I'm trusting you. I'm believing your promise stated in your word, knowing that you cannot lie, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you've asked the Lord to come into your life. In fact, maybe you've done it many, many, many times. And now the Lord is saying to you, you are saved. I've never lost you. You've never been plucked out of my hand. I've never let go of you. I've never forsaken you. I want you to know and trust in me. I hold on to you. And this morning, you can just thank God. God, I know you've got me. Just just receive the gift of the assurance of salvation. The writer gives us all of this because he wants us to go forward. He wants us to go forward in maturity. And maybe... You've been stuck in that perpetual immaturity and you haven't grown. But you know that God's calling you. You know that he wants you to grow. In fact, many of you in this room actually know what he's been asking you to do. Some of you he's asking you to be baptized. You've never made your profession of faith public. Some of you he's he's asking you to serve. You come to church, you receive, you get, you get, you get, but you never give. Some of you he's He's asking you to go on a mission trip. Some of you, he's asking you to join a life group. Some of you, ah, fill in the blank. You know what God's speaking to you. And you haven't moved out of your immaturity because you've been stuck. But the writer of Hebrews says, now that you're certain of your salvation, now that you know that God's got you, isn't it time that you move forward? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. No one's going to embarrass you. No one's going to come to you. But how many of you this morning would signify by raising your hand and saying, I know what God has said to me, and I am going to receive that. And you just lift your hand up and put it right back down. Yes, 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 all over the room. God bless you. God bless you. Father, you've seen these hands. More importantly, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. I pray for these this morning who have asked you to come into their hearts and life for the first time, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would seal them and make that certain. For these today who for the first time have the assurance of their salvation, I pray that now they would go forward into maturity. And for each of us, when we hear your voice, 
and we know what you're asking us to do, we would say yes to that and we would receive your will for our lives. Father, we pray that in the days to come, we would see your power and your anointing and a change because now we choose to rest in your promises, knowing that you cannot lie, knowing that your purpose is unchangeable, knowing that your character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We go forward to be the people of God as you would have us to be. And we do this in the most precious and holy name of Jesus. Just a couple of chapters ahead of where we are in Hebrews in uh, chapter 10. Here's what I want to send you out with this morning. The writer says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.